I, uh, before we start, I just want to thank all those who have been praying uh, for me and my family uh, during uh, the interesting sort of uh, trial of trying to sell my, my home church and get uh, uh, plugged in here as, uh, as we would like to. And uh, it's not always an easy road, but uh, we covered the prayers that you have. And so um, I always consider it a, a privilege to come and to speak to you. And I hope uh, that the Lord will give us all ears to hear and eyes to see and feet to do as well. So let's come to the Lord in prayer as we have the Spirit speak to our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time in which we can open your inerrant and infallible word to see your words in the exact way and how you want us to understand who you are, that you have revealed yourself to man in human history, and you have chose a means in which we can study it from one generation to the next that is found in the pages of your word, on how that word is unchanging, how it is the way in which we can have godliness that it can change the life of the most horrendous of sinners. And through its pages, we get to see the Lord Jesus Christ on display. How we love him and our love grows for him each day, even though we have never seen him, as what Peter says. And so, truly, give us eyes to see the wonders of your word. Give us ears to hear of its depth And yet, Father, we can see its simplicity to that even the youngest of child can hear the message of salvation, see their sin, repent, and come to you in salvation. So, Father, thank you. And, Father, before we close our prayer, be with Vodi Bakum at this time as he is on his way to the States uh, during a uh, 36-hour plane trip Um, Be with him as he has heart failure and he needs um, um, severe medical attention. And just be with him and his family at this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible at this time, please open it up to Genesis chapter 40. And if you didn't bring a Bible, I encourage you to take the, uh, a pew Bible in front of you because we're going to be looking at a number of different verses. And as we look at things this morning, I want you to see God's Word. This is something to where you just can't sit back and listen, but I want you to view God's Word in its entirety because it will be life-changing. God's Word will open up and be amazing to your heart. And it's on page 43 in the pew Bible if you... Open it up and view what we're going to be looking at. But before we get to chapter 40, I'm going to start reading in verses nine, uh, verse 19 of chapter 39 to basically see where we left off and see where we're going to go. Look at verse 19 of Genesis chapter 39. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, as Potiphar, which she has spoken to him, that's the nameless wife, Potiphar's wife, saying, this is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him in jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in jail. Verse 21, but the Lord 
was with Joseph, extended kindness towards him, and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Verse 1 of chapter 40. Then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and baker for the king of Egypt offended the Lord. The king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was in prison. And you can stop right there. And so since we're picking up the story, since we've seen it last, Joseph is now in prison. Not only was he sold by his brothers into slavery, not only was he slandered and um, uh, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, he finds himself in prison and he is still in prison. He's still a slave. And so um, the question is, is asked, why is Joseph in prison? It's all of what I've just said, but it, but it is far more. Because with all of this bad stuff happening to Joseph, he's actually done nothing really wrong. And so to answer those questions, I think we need to punt. We need to sort of get a larger picture of why Joseph is in, is in prison and where God is taking him. The reality is, uh, I'm actually going through football withdrawals. Super Bowl was last week, no more football now, and uh, my Sunday afternoons are sort of open. So forgive me for using a football analogy to sort of fill in that gap. We need to punt. And in football, when it comes time to punt, a lot of times it's in the fourth quarter and your team is wanting to um, strive to go downfield, and the team goes three and out and they got to punt the ball. So if you're rooting for the team, you think, oh, man, we're not going to win. But punting to the coach isn't something necessarily a bad thing. Because if you get a good punt, not like the punter for Kansas City, who sort of squibs the ball out of bounds, you could actually put the uh, opposing team deep in, um, on their field to where now your defense can do something to get the ball back, or you'll get better field position for Tom Brady to sort of come on the field, drive down, and score the winning touchdown in, in the final seconds of the game. And so that's where we are this morning, because I think when you look at Joseph's life and where we are and where we are going, it's time to punt. Because as we begin to sort of look at Joseph's life, I have to make a confession. Because when I first preached through this passage, I went from chapter 37 to where uh, Joseph's in slavery, and uh, we sort of jumped right after that to chapters 49 and 50. Because I wanted to lay down a foundation of God's providential work in the life of Joseph. And I accomplished all that. But since then, as I uh, began to prepare Joseph's life, Joseph's story has been calling to me. Tim, Tim, there's more going on. And as I sort of kept reading things over, I began to see a larger picture. 
and through my study and through commentators, I began to sort of put together, there's far more of God's providential work going on in Joseph's life than what is obvious to where, yeah, God is directing him. God is with him. There is a plan for him. But there's far more. The picture is much larger. And so before we can move on to look at Joseph and how God is orchestrating his life and the life of his people, we have to sort of punt. I have to give you the big picture of the book of Genesis to see how the book of Genesis is sort of um, all together as a single unit. And so I've missed so much of the story of what God is trying to communicate to us by jumping to the end. And so it's time to punt. It's time to pause before we move forward to get better field position to understand the story, the story of Joseph's life. And so to fully understand the book of Genesis, to see how it all comes together, there are two key factors that we need to be aware on how the book of Genesis is constructed and how it needs to be interpreted. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so for some of you, you may be, oh man, really? It's going to be a snooze fest. But trust me, once we look at the passages, once we see how through the Holy Spirit's working, how God used Moses to sort of put together a story, it's amazing. The book of Genesis will open up in amazing ways in your understanding of it. Because the book does have not only how we're to live our lives, but also it really tells us the foundation of, of how God is working through the lives of his people. Because if you just take the story that we just saw, Joseph and Potter's, Potiphar's wife, it's not given to us in, in chapter um, uh, 39 as an avenue to, to teach us how to run from sexual impurity. Though there are principles that we can pull out of there, that's not why we have it. And so to understand the stories that we have, we need to understand the construction. Because many times as we come to the Old Testament, we think, well, the Old Testament is just a bunch of random stories that we have. You, you, you take Noah, God's going to tell him to build an ark. That's one story. You take Abraham, he has no children. God's going to give him children. You take Isaac. Well, Isaac uh, was the one that um, Abraham tried to sacrifice. You take J Jacob. Well, there's a story about him wrestling with God. And you take Joseph. Well, he has a multicolored coat. But if you look at things and you read things in your devotions one chapter at a time, you may miss the larger picture of exactly why we have the stories we have. Because not only are there key players, but there are secondary players. It talks about Lot, talks about Tamar, talks about all these other people, but yet it's more than just individual stories. And so to understand the larger picture, we need to understand why we have what we have. Because many times in our devotions, we sort of um, come to the stories in the Old Testament and we read them like Aesop's fables. That there's a story, there's a moral of the story, and we need to be like them and not like somebody else. And so if we want to be like Abraham, we need to be trusting God. But we don't want to be like bad Abraham where he denied his, that uh, Sarah was his wife, not only once, but twice. Good thing it wasn't on Valentine's Day, because that would really be bad. And so 
you can't sort of read into things too, too far to put yourself in, into the picture. But yet at the same time, to understand how the Lord has put together a larger story, it makes the Old Testament just come alive. And so this morning we're going to look at how Genesis is put together and see how the overall structure of the book tells the why Joseph is now in prison and he needs to be in prison and where the story is going to go. And so we're going to be looking at and start with the divisions of the book of Genesis. And so go from Genesis chapter 40, because we're not going to be there today. I want you to look at Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at a lot of passages. So you need to write things down, just sort of follow along. And you need to be looking at the pages to see how Genesis is constructed. And it's amazing. Because one of the first things that I learned in Hebrew class, besides being totally lost, was, was that when, whenever you see repetition in the Bible, there's an emphasis there. And Hebrews is notorious for that. If there's repetition, that's important. And it's interesting because last time I was at the Shepherds Conference, this has nothing to do with my message, I saw my first Hebrew teacher, Dr. Zemek, and he remembered me after like 15 years. I remember you. You... You didn't do good in Hebrew, did you? So I, I passed. I, and I, I want to be remembered for something that I had a hard time with Hebrew, but that's anyway. But that's one thing that stood out. Repetition is key. And the book of Genesis has um, divisions that, um, that forms its, its structure. There are 11 divisions in the book of Genesis. And beginning in chapter 2, these divisions are made very clear, though you may miss them with a cursory uh, reading. And it, it's with the phrase, these are the generations of. And so there are 11 of them that are repeated 11 times in the book of Genesis. The Hebrew word for generations is toledot. There are 11 toledots in the book of Genesis. Why is that important? It's hugely important. It's significant of why it's important. And the first, the first um, these are the generations of, is found in verse 4 in Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse 4. It says, because it's not obvious in the New American Standard, but this is the account of the heavens and the earth that were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. That word account is the word toledot, which means generations. And literally, it says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. So chapter 1 gives the general picture of creation, and chapter 2 gives the... Um, gives a detailed picture of creation, focusing on the creation of man. And then we have chapter 3, the infamous chapter, where it all comes unglued because of the sin introduced by the first couple. Go over to chapter 3 and verse 15, because chapter 3 and verse 15 is really the thesis statement for the entire Bible. You want to know what the Bible's about? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Uh, it's called by theologians the Proto-Evangelium. That's a big $10 word because I had to learn it for school, so I dump it on you. But it just means it's the first time the gospel is mentioned in the Bible. And we find that in verse 15. Look what it says. 
It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, that's significant, and her seed. He will bruise you on the head, and you will bruise him on the heel. The reference to um, bruising on, on the head is a reference to um, the serpent, and bruising uh, on the heel is a reference to Christ being on, on the cross. But the key there is the word seed. And as we shall see, as things begin to unfold, there is going to be a promised one who is going to be bruised on the heel, but ultimately he is going to bruise the, um, the serpent on the head. And so this is the first picture of redemption that we have in the Bible, where, all, where we find the opportunity for all that is wrong to be made right coming from the first Adam, when Adam fell. Go over to chapter 5 in verse 1. We have the second of these generations are found. In chapter 5 and verse 1, we have the generations of Adam. And so as, we, as we're going to see, as we have these generations of, or these Toledotes, that section is about Adam, right? These are the generations of. Look at verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day the Lord... Uh, and the day God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them, named them man in the day that they were created. Why is this important? It's important because after the fall and then the curse, God promised that there would be one promise seed that would come and that it would bring about redemption for mankind. And so in chapter 4, we have the first murder. There is a promised one who is coming through the descendant or the seed line or the bloodline. But Cain, um, Cain kills his brother Abel. Cain, the seed of the serpent, which is described in John, 1 John chapter 3, kills the seed of the woman to where from her the, um, the line or the promised one is to come. And so the, the promised line, the promised seed cannot come through Abel. But yet we find with Abel, with the short life and very little that we have, he's actually mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 in that great hall of faith because of his sacrifice, his blood sacrifice. He was faithful to do what God had told him to do and he's mentioned there in Hebrews chapter 11. And yet there was another. Go to chapter 4 in, in verse 25. In chapter 4 and 25, after, after his death, Adam had relations with his wife again and gave, him, gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And this leads to chapter 5 where we have a genealogy. And so don't fall asleep yet. It's going to get good, trust me. Here we have the listing of the generations of Abraham. Because the question will arrive, where is the promised seed from chapter 3, verse 15, going to be coming through? It's going to be coming through Seth. And so now we have the names beginning with Abraham going through the line of Seth going to Noah. Turn over with Genesis chapter 6, if you would. In verse 9, we have the next section, or the next Toledot, of how Genesis is put together. 
because there are 11 sections. In verse 9, we have the generations of Noah. It says, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the fathers of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So this section is about and have, has an emphasis on Noah. Look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God tells Noah, I want you to build an ark. Why? A flood's coming. And so through one of Noah's sons, there will be the promised one coming. But where is the seed going to come from? Is it going to be Shem or Ham or Japheth? We're not told. You have to go to chapter 11 in verse 10. There we have the generations of Shem. Look what verse 10 says. These are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpachshad and he had other sons and daughters. So following this, we get to see, well, that's where the promised line is going to be coming from. It's going to be going through the line of Shem. Go over to chapter 11 on how Genesis is constructed. We get to find the next generations of. And there we find the generations of Terah in verse 27. It says, now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And so there we have Terah, who is the father of Abraham, getting his own generations of. Well, it's very interesting because Abraham doesn't get his own generations of. You would think the father of the patriarchs would have his own Toledo. No, his father does. So the seed line is going to go through Terah. Go over to chapter 25, if you would, in verse 12. There we have the next generations of, in verse 12. So between chapter 11 and chapter 25, guess what? Abraham. Chapter 5 and verse 12, we have the generations of Ishmael. Now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael. Well, who's Ishmael? Well, he's Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. Sarah's, um, Abraham's wife, Sarah, she was barren. She, to help facilitate uh, the family tree, he gives her, um, him his, his handmaid. She bears a son. Is the promised seed going to go through her? No, it is not. God will eventually tell them that they will bear a son, and the promised seed is not going through him. It is going to go through Isaac. Look at verse 19. We find the next generations of. So some of these are dead ends. Will it go through here? No, it won't. It's going to go through here. And so these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And so look what we have uh, with, with Isaac. And then his, um, uh, he's going to marry Rebekah. Trouble is, she's barren. And so they pray. They leave it unto the Lord. How can the promised seed come through someone who is barren? 
while they pray in verse 23. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. And one person shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And so there we have the generations of Isaac and how God is going to use him to where the promised seed will go through. Go over to chapter 36. We find the next one in verse 1. There we have the generations of Esau. So with Isaac, he's going to have a son. Is the promise seed going to go through him? Well, in verse 1 of chapter 36. Now these are the records of the generations of Esau. That is Edom. Is the promise seed going to go through him? Well, look at the next verse. Well, Esau took wives from the daughters of Canaan. <laughs> That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing at all. Go down to, 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 verse, to verse 9. We find the next generations of. And these are the re uh, records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country. Esau is going to have children. They're going to uh, uh, flourish in uh, the area of Edom and become the Edomites. But, we but from that record, they are, the promise does not come through. Where is it going to come through? His brother, Jacob. And so look at verse uh, chapter 37 and verse 2. This is the last of these of the generations of, or the Toledotes. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned. In the land of Canaan, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. And now look, the very next sentence. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with his sons of Bildah and the sons of Zifla, his father's wives. So here we find the generations of Jacob. What does this tell us? This tells us that from this point on to the rest of the book, it's an emphasis not on Joseph, but on the life of Jacob and, and God's faithfulness to him. Huh. So when you look at the life of Joseph, there's a lot of good stuff there, but the, the emphasis is not on Joseph. Why? Because Joseph doesn't get his own generations of. Is the seed line going to go through Joseph? The seed line is not going to go through Joseph. And we'll see that. The promised seed is going to go through Judah. Trouble is, famine is on the way. Starvation is on the way. How will the promised seed survive this massive famine? And so the Toledos gives you an understanding of what the emphasis of where you are in the book of Genesis. And so it's all about the promised seed. And God's faithfulness now, as you look at the life of Joseph, is to Jacob. Through the life of Joseph, there's a difference. And so that's the first aspect. When you get to look at the 11 divisions in the book, but it doesn't stop there. It gets far better. Because that might say, okay, that's fine. But it gets far, far better than that. There are themes that are found throughout the book of Genesis. Three main themes that come to the forefront. So that's why we have to punt. 
You have to understand as you read through the entire book that these three things are uh, repetitive throughout the whole book. And uh, one of the few things I remember from Hebrew, if there's an emph- if it's repeated, whether it's, it's in its near context or its far context, that's really important. That should stand out because that's how the book is actually knitted together. And careful eyes will pick up on it. And once you do, the meaning of the book just flourishes and overflows. And so we're going to be looking at these three themes because God made a promise to Abraham and it defines what God is going to do and how he's going to accomplish it. And so God makes a promise to Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. I want you to look at this promise. Because when you look at the entire structure of the Bible, it's the fulfillment of the promise that God has given to us. That we're just not only fallen man, but God has provided a way of salvation through that promised seed. And when you begin to look at this covenant, this agreement, a covenant is just an agreement that God makes. It's going to be unconditional, and it's not through the faithfulness of Abraham that he carries it about. It's first mentioned in chapter 12. It's mentioned in chapter 13. It's expanded upon in chapter 15, and it's amplified in chapter 17, and it just keeps on going, getting larger and larger. And so in chapter 17, I just want to sort of pause. And these three themes or three components are land, our seed, and blessing. Yeah, there you go. Land, seed, blessing. Those are the three themes that are woven throughout the book of Genesis. Look at uh, verse 4, if you would, of, of chapter 17, and we find this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So this is, this is going to be the, the fourth time God promises to Abraham, or Abram here. Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Now watch these three things come out. Your reward shall be great. Blessing. He took him outside and said, now look towards the heavens. Count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your, and do you see that next word? Descendants. That's the word seed. It's just translated different in the English. But literally, it's the word seed. That's important. We'll come back to that in a moment. Then he believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as what? Righteousness. When did Abraham get saved? Right here. Paul quotes him. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this, what? Land. So we've seen blessing, which is going to get amplified. Seed, your descendants. um, And there's going to be a land for you to possess. And he said, oh Lord, how will I know I will possess it? In verse 9, and he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat 
in a three-year-old ram, in a turtle love, in a pigeon. What's that for? He's going to sacrifice. He's going to cut it up into little pieces and put some on this side, put some on that side, and God is going to make an agreement or he's going to ratify this agreement. Not through Abraham. Abraham's not going to walk through the middle with God to ratify this, co co this covenant as what was the practice done at the time. God walks down the middle by himself. Huh. That's what makes me a dispensationalist. Why? Because there has to be a literal king, uh, kingdom in a literal land in a little thousand years because of the covenant God makes with Abraham because it's unconditional. It, it, it's not conditional on the faithfulness of Israel. It's, it's based on the faithfulness of God because he is what? Faithful. And so God ratifies a covenant with himself. He makes an, an, an agreement. And so these three themes, this land, the seed, the blessing that God makes with Abraham, though it's called an Abrahamic covenant, it's an agreement that's found throughout Scripture. And these three things are found, as we shall see, throughout the book of Genesis. And from this point on, Abram's going to get a new name. Abram means exalted father, even though he's childless still at this time. And he's given a new name, Abraham, father of the multitude, even though he still doesn't have kids. And so these three promises becomes the theme for the rest of the book of Genesis. And so let's take the first one, if you would, the theme of land. Go back to Genesis 1 in chapter 1, uh, verse 1. Genesis 1, 1, you already know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the what? Earth. All right, there's a place. Well, now you may say, now, Tim, you're beginning to read into the text. Well, you may think that, and I hope, hope, hope I'm not, but I don't think so. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4. We find through the first Toledot, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. Well, why is that important? That's important because as we know, in, in, like in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, God's plan of redemption has been in place for eternity past from before the foundations of the world, that God was going to send a promised seed. And where is he going to come? He's going to come to a, a certain place at a certain time. And where is it going to be? On the earth. All right? Look at chapter 3. We're going to see the land um, not just in the aspect of creation itself, but also in the fall. Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 22. And, and God implied, drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he, staged, he, he stationed a cherubim and um, flaming, the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. There's that aspect of garden. The garden was a physical place, and, and a certain place in and on the land. And so we see in the fall that there's a land, Let's continue. We're going to see the land um, in relationship to the flood. Go to chapter 6, if you would. Now it came about, in chapter 6, verse 1, now it came about when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. 
All right, so man began to multiply. Jump down to verse 5. Then the law saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made the man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then in verse 8, we have the contrast, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Jump down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked at the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh was corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. God needs to purge the land for the promised seed, the promised one to come. Look at chapter 7 in verse 20. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. The birds, the cattle, the beasts, and every swarming things that swarmed upon the earth in all mankind. Verse 22, and all of that was on the dry land. All of those nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. So when you begin to get to see during the time of the flood, just prior and, and during the flood, there's a lot of mention of earth, land. How about land during the time of patriarchs? Well, that theme sort of continues. Look at chapter 23, if you would. There are many, many passages that we can look at, but the one in, in chapter 23 was the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise God makes to Abraham with giving him some of the land. In chapter 23, not just any land, but a certain land. Look at verse 17 and, and 18 of Genesis chapter 23. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced... Mamre, the field and cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field and that were within all the confines of its border, were deeded over to Abraham for a possession. So Abraham buys a small chunk of land in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave um, of the field at Mapella facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it was deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. So Abraham buys a small piece of land for him and his wife to be buried. Why is this significant? It's hugely significant because this is a small portion of land that was the first fruits of the promise that God makes to Abraham. I'm going to give you land. And you're, the people in the land are, are going to be like the sands of the sea. So he doesn't have a land yet.
But now he purchases a small portion of the land that God has promised for him, which was a uh, partial fulfillment of the promises that he's about to make to his descendants or to his seed. So from the beginning with creation, the land was created. Man was expelled from the land. The land was then purged. And then a certain land was promised to a particular people. Then a piece of land was bought by Abraham. The land was then expanded by Isaac in the up and coming chapters. And it was further expanded by Jacob. And so God has promised a land and his people are in the land, just like what God has said. But beginning in chapter 37, we find Joseph is no longer in the land. That's important. That's significant. That can't be a good thing. Not only, is, not only that, but Joseph is in Egypt, which is a country that is symbolized throughout the scripture as something to being opposite of what God is and opposing God's people. And so the land throughout the book of Genesis is important. It's repeated. Why? Because he made a promise to Abraham. And within that promise, there is going to be a kingdom. And through that kingdom is going to be a promised one. But not only that, there's a second theme I want you to look at that's found throughout the book of Genesis. And this second theme is the aspect of seed. It is the aspect of seed in creation. Go back to chapter 1. Let's just look at a, a couple of these passages. In chapter 1, I want you to look at verse 11. I believe God is creating literally here in a literal six-day period for us to get an understanding of what is going on. And in verse 11, it says that God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, thus yielding seed. And so if you ever did any planting of a garden, you said, yeah, plants, if you want to uh, have a garden, you need seeds, all right? Why is that important? It's going to be repeated throughout the book. And all the fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. So it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and the trees bearing fruit with seed in them, and after their kind. And God saw that it was good. It was evening and there was morning on the third day. Jump down to verse 29. Now we have the animals. And then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. To every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and everything that moves on, on the earth which has life, I have given Every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw that he made, oh, that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. And so seed is implied here within the animals because that's how animals reproduce, essentially through, through its seed. And so, um, and so there we have the aspect of seed being found in creation. And it's interesting because when you begin to look at the creation story, you find that macroevolution could not have taken place as, as a footnote because you, have, you don't have one kind because everything is, is after its own kind in verses 24 and 25. 
There's cattle and creeping things and beasts of the field were created after their own kind. And so you don't have uh, reptiles becoming birds and birds then becoming something else. You have everything that's created after its own kind. And so by the time that you get to chapter 40, what is Joseph doing as being prime minister? Well, you may not know yet, but he is storing up seed. Why is that important? It's significant. It's very important. Because there's going to be a question of where is the seed for the promised one who was promised way back in Genesis chapter 3 and then confirmed in the Abrahamic covenant there will be a seed. Where is that coming from? It's not going to come through Joseph. It's going to come through Judah. And so we see the seed in creation. But there's also the seed in the fall. And we already looked at that in, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. There's a seed of the woman and the seed of man. But go to Genesis chapter 13. We see the aspect of seed in the patriarchs. I want you to look at another one of the uh, chapters that talk about the Abrahamic covenant, if you would, the agreement that God made with Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 13, this is the second time to where the agreement is repeated and expanded. And I want you to look at verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, north and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land, there's land again, which you see, I will give to you and to your seed. Literal there, descendants there in my Bible, but it's seed forever. I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your seed can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. So we begin to see God's tangible ev evidences of his faithfulness to his pro uh, promises. Whether or not it's through the infertility with um, Abraham and Sarah, or through the deception that happens with Jacob and Leah, or even through the up-and-coming famine that's going to take place with Jacob having to go to Egypt to leave the land. There are reasons for that. And the reason is God needs to teach his people that he's going to bring about the plan of redemption through the promised seed, even through difficult times. And so we get to see that throughout the book of Genesis, there's this aspect of seed, descendants. But yet there's a third uh, theme that we have through the few moments that we have. Don't worry, we're almost done. It's the aspect of blessing God Beginning in creation, he's going to bless man. Look at Genesis chapter 1, where we uh, this aspect of land, seed, and blessing. Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 27, 28. God created man in his own image, and the image man he created, male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. I'm not going to make you multiply. That's a blessing. Fill the earth. Subdue it. You're going to rule. This is the cultural mandate. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Go to chapter 2. 
Next page in verse 15. God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat. I'm going to bless you. Eat all your fill. But there's a restriction. But from the tree of, the, uh, of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. And so God makes an agreement. You can eat whatever you want. This is called the um, Adamic covenant. Uh, God's covenant with, with Adam. You can eat whatever you want, except don't eat from that one. And so in creation, there is blessing. But also, there's creation in, um, there's blessing in the fall. Look at Genesis chapter, chapter 9, if you would. We see this blessing um, after the fall, through the life of Noah. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 8. And God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and your seed after you with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every living beast, and all of you that comes out of the ark and every living uh, and every beast on the earth. I establish my covenant with you. This is going to be the Noahic covenant or the covenant with the rainbow, that God will no longer destroy the earth through a flood. Jump down to verse 12. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all successful seeds, I set my bow in the sky, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. Jump down to verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, then I will look upon it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature and all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I established between me and all the flesh of the earth. And so God makes an agreement with Noah. No longer will I destroy the world again, the land, through flood. This is also makes me by the reading of the text that there had to be a universal flood. Why? Because we still have floods. Towns are wiped away. Houses are wiped away. It still floods sometimes. So it can't be a local flood because that would make God a liar. But it's a universal flood. Not only that, it, um, uh, there's blessing. Um, but also uh, turn to Genesis chapter 12. We're just about there. There is blessing through the patriarchs. This is the first time we see the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, where we see the land seed and the blessing. This is great. The Lord said to Abram, go forth. Just, just leave. Pack up and leave. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will, what? Bless you. And I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That last sentence in verse 3, it's us. It's the Gentiles, to where I don't have to be, be, be from the bloodline or to, or, or to convert to receive the blessings that will come through the promised one. 
And so it happens with Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. It happens with Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. But there's one last verse. Go to Genesis chapter 28. I was going to jump over it, but I have to show you this. Because it affects Joseph. In Genesis chapter 28, we see this land, the seed, the blessing. Look at verse 14. Last verse, I promise. Your seed will be like the dust of the earth. We've heard that before. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. In you and your seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. That's us again. Uh, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. That's important, the word back. Why? At this point, uh, uh, they were in the land, but God promises to bring them back in the land. What's that has reference to? The Exodus, when they go from Egypt to go back into the land. And for I will not leave you until what I have done and what I have promised you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Why do we need an Exodus? Because God's people aren't going to be in the land anymore for him to be blessed. And so Joseph, in chapter 40, is not in the land. They are going to be going into Egypt as a large family and then exit um, Egypt 400 years later as a nation. And so to fully understand Joseph's story... Knowing the structure of how the book of Genesis is so important. To understand that these are the generations of gives you a perspective of, well, how is God going to be blessing his, uh, his people in, in this one section and bring about his promises? To understand the book of Genesis, you really need to understand the three themes, the land, the seed, and the blessing. So when you look at the generations of in the book of Genesis, we see that Adam falls and sin enters creation. Noah is going to take us through the flood. Coming out of the flood, Noah has sons. But not all Noah's sons are going to be through, uh, uh, is for the promised seed, but only through the son of Shem. Then we get to Terah, which is a transition. Uh, these are the generations of. He's going to have a son, uh, Abraham. He's going to have two sons. Through one of his sons, Ishmael, is he going to be the promised seed? He is not the promised seed. Isaac is the promised seed. Isaac is going to have twin sons. Will the firstborn be the promised seed? No, the firstborn is not the promised seed. Why isn't the firstborn the promised seed? Because God chooses the secondborn to be the promised seed. Jacob is that one. Why is that important? Because God wants to show his people that election, not birthright, is important. God will eventually take them all into Egypt through Joseph. And then for 400 years, God will turn them into a nation to where they leave Egypt and God puts them back into the land. But the land is not enough for them. Time will go by to where the nation will want a king. And so they cry out for a king, and they choose their own king. But he's not from the seed line. He's not from the line of Judah. He's not the answer. But God has his own choice, his king. God wanted a man after his own heart. 
So God chooses a shepherd who, who would become a great king, who is in the right seed line, David. He's a great king. He's the greatest king in, uh, Israel had, but he's flawed. He's not the answer. The kingdom then gets divided. There's a kingdom in the north, and there's a kingdom in the south. The kingdom is, in the north is not the right answer. They have 19 ungodly kings. They are not the answer. They get assimilated by Assyria. The one in the south, they have 20 kings. Only eight are godly kings. But yet they are not the answer. So God, during this time, sends prophets, spokespeople for the law. They, they call the people to turn from, uh, from their sin and turn back to God. But they are not enough. So the people are in the land, their nation, they have the law, they have a temple, and they have a king. But all of that is still not enough. Because of their disobedience, they go into exile so God can purge his people. Seventy year late, years later, he brings them back to the land. But that still is not enough. The nation now exists back in the, in the land, but they no longer have a king. They want a king. They yearn for a king, but they don't have it. So finally, we come to the New Testament. And guess what? The New Testament begins with a genealogy. Why? Because that's why we celebrate Christmas. He is from the line of Abraham. He's in the line of Ju Judah. He is the promised seed. But it's not over yet because God takes the baby Jesus into Egypt, just like Israel was, was taken into Egypt. And then Jesus comes out of Egypt to fulfill the, um, the verse that, so out of Egypt he calls his son. When Israel came out of Egypt, they passed through the waters of the Jordan. The next time in the book of Matthew, we, we see him from going into Egypt. He's getting baptized in the river Jordan. From there we get to see Jesus going into 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Similar to Israel, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. While he is there in the wilderness, the evil one tempts Jesus with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The same way the evil one tempted Adam in the garden, and he fell. But the last Adam was victorious, where the first Adam fell and sinned. He then goes to the mountain where he starts preaching and says things like, Well, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he now becomes the lawgiver, greater than Moses. And after that, he starts to do miraculous things to confirm his message, eventually going to the cross, becoming the suffering servant, where he rises from the dead on the third day, demonstrating that he crushed the head of the serpent. That is the story of the Bible. That's the story of Genesis. There will be a promised one. So as we come to chapter 40, Joseph is outside the land. That is not a good thing. And so many mes messages about Joseph and ministering to Pharaoh is that you're faithful, God will give you stuff. And it takes away the purpose of how the book is constructed. Joseph is there, 
in prison to be ready to be used by God so that God can spare his people from famine to become a nation to then go back into the land so that through the line of Judah, the promised seed will come. It's amazing. It's more than just God's providentially working through the life you know, of Joseph, which he is. God is preparing his people that through the hardships of the exile, through the hardships of, of the conquest, through the hardship of ungodly kings, through the hardship of um, even in Babylon, trust me, there is a plan and it's working out. And so that's why we have to punt. And so... This is actually a two-part message because now we come to chapter 40. But you're going to have to wait till April when the, when, when, the cat, when the coach calls my number again. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word and how it's put together. And though, Father, it can be just a little uninteresting on how it's constructed, once we understand it, your word comes alive, that your word is more than just stories of random people doing random things, but it is knitted together to show that you fulfill your promises. And even the worst of sinners can see their sin and see how they fall short of the law and how there is one who is promised that can grant forgiveness if they repent of their sin and know that they can have eternal life because you are a just God and you provided one who took their sin and died in, in their place. So thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name.